There is no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone, and I'm Wanda Wallace. Now today, we're going to talk about silence. So if you look at the headline news around the world, it seems that there's a corporate crisis just about every week somewhere in the world, if maybe more often than that. And a major problem is uncovered, and we, the customers and the consumers, wonder how it was that no one could have managed to see that problem before now. So think Volkswagen or Facebook or hashtag me too, or any number of pharmaceutical companies that caught on the back foot of drugs that were not quite advertised or working as advertised, or even the financial crisis of 2008. We all look at those companies and we say, some people inside those companies knew, maybe only a few, but they knew. So how could they have remained silent? So we want to talk about what is it that happens in a culture when stables why does it happen? What are the causes? And more importantly, how can you tell if you, your culture is at risk to break it? My guest today is at RVB Associates and the co-author of a book, featured in a whole lot of places, including CEO Magazine, CNN Money, Fortune, San Francisco Chronicle, Bloomberg Radio, Entrepreneurial Magazine, and of course, now with me on Out of the Comfort Zone. Um, Rob comes to this work at RVB Associates from the corporate side, so he was Vice President of Performance Development at Wachovia Corporation, which is a Wells Fargo company, and before that, he was at State Street. So he's seen the inside of companies and coached executives and done training and development for high potentials. So he's got a great background to talk about this corporate culture of silence. Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's, I'm glad to talk about this. This is an important topic, and I think, as you do, that it happens more often than we really realize or talk about until the crisis hits. So just by way of explanation, getting started, what do you mean when you say a culture of silence? What does that look like? Well, uh, I characterize it as uh, a culture where employees willfully withhold important work-related information. And they do so for a number of reasons, but there are some predominant ones that my research points to that are uh, pretty important. Okay. So what are those? Tell us about them. Well, the number one reason is the perception of egregious leadership practices. And it happens to impact about 14% of uh, employees in the United States and uh, more, obviously, globally. So uh, egregious leadership practices are aggressive leadership practices, and they're characterized by things like shouting, berating, even ignoring people, putting people down in public places. Um, And we did a national study uh, uh, using our Silence Voice Index, the SBI, uh, uh, 400 middle managers globally. And what we found was that 53% of the respondents said that offering ideas to their management is futile. 44% of them said they were unwilling to speak up with ideas for change. 
and 47% said that they've offered ideas to managers in the past and they never got credit for it. And of those 47%, 38% said that would cause them to hesitate to offer ideas again in the future. So this is very important. The reason why it's so important is because the management culture won't know about this until it's too late. All right. Yeah, culture silent yeah. announce themselves right. uh, until they're on the front front page of the Tribune or the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, yeah. That seems unfortunate. I think that certainly is what happens. And I think there's an awful lot of people leading organizations who are then shocked. Like, why didn't you say anything? But as you say, if you've got managers that are yelling at you or berating you or refusing to give you credit or whatever else along those lines, why would I tell you? Right. Okay. Right. Right. You're absolutely right. What we find is that the C-suite is isolated from the rest of the management culture and hierarchy. And typically when things show up in the, in the Wall Street Journal of the Tribune, <clears throat> the C-suite will ask the question, why didn't I know about this? Why not? And what we know from research is that uh, out of the 100% of problems known by individual contributors at the staff level, only 4% of those problems make it to the executive level. So 96% of problems that are known at the lowest levels are not, are not known at the highest levels, regardless of whether or not it, it just it didn't matter, wasn't important, the problem was solved. But even if a fraction of that 96% of problem information represented significant risk to an organization, when I ask C-suite members around the world, would you want to know and unequivocally, they say, we absolutely would want to know. Yeah. But they don't. Yeah. Wow. Nine, I just have to hold on to that. 96% of the problems that employees know in the company are never known at the C-suite level. Now, granted, some of them don't need to be known because the problems are solved at lower level in the organization, hopefully. But you're right. Even if only 1% of those, geez, that could be a lot. Yes, it, it is. Um, quite a bit. Um, you know, the, the research that we did was rather extensive. And uh, what we found was that there are um, six types of uh, silence and voice indicators. And that has been the driver of the silence voice index. So um, in the silence arena, in particular, we identified four types, predominant types of silence. And they are offensive, uh, defensive, social silence, and futility. So offensive silence is rooted in retaliatory motive, not because employee cultures are insidious, its members are not necessarily insidious, but justice theory says that the employee culture will find a way to level the playing field. So when there are perceptions of injustice, are an unlevel playing field. Employees you will use silence as one of the mechanisms to level the playing field. For example, one of the questions in our SVI is, uh, well, actually, it's a statement that says, I've given ideas to management in the past and I've not <clears throat> received credit. <clears throat> that only has to happen once for an employee to say, oh, really? Guess what? That's the last idea you get from me. Right. So that's a risk to an organization. Um, okay. The other type of silence is uh, defensive, and that's rooted in fear. And okay. when em the members of the employee culture feel as though they are at risk if they speak up, uh, they won't. 
So in the vernacular, we hear things like, well, I'm just going to keep my head down and my mouth shut until it feels safe around here. And that safety, that psychological safety, is usually driven by perceptions of some egregious practice uh, or some major change that pushes people into a state of unsafetyness, like um, a restructuring, which we know usually happens in threes, uh, a merger, a disposition. Um, That's usually when people, uh, the uh, fear level rises and the silence level rises. Um, Futility is merely uh, a function of inaction. So managers might say to their employee culture members, oh, oh, great, that's a great idea. Uh, Let me get you right back to you. But they never do. And (laughs) that's a risk because, you know, the associate gives up an idea, they make a contribution, and they expect to be acknowledged whether the idea is implemented or not is not the issue. The issue is that the dignity and self-respect of that individual employee has been compromised, and so they go no further. And then social silence is really rooted in, um, it's rooted in affiliative motives. So uh, people, employees are hesitant to say anything or do anything that would harm a colleague. You know, we've worked together for so long. Our, our kids know each other, whatever the social affiliation is. They withhold information that might put a colleague, a friend at work at risk. Okay. All right. That makes sense. There are four types. The offensive type, which means I want to get even. You know, there is an injustice. You didn't listen to me before. I didn't get credit before. I'll just withhold now. The defensive type, which is out of fear. I'm just going to keep my head down and not say anything until it's safe. The social type where I care about my colleague and I don't want to do harm. Often not seeing the larger consequences of that one, I would assume. And then the futility is, why should I take an action? You don't care any rate after, you know. Never mind, I guess, is the way they're describing that one. So how, you know, I can imagine in a corporation some of that goes on every day. Some of all four of those go on every day. When does it get to be big enough that it's actually really becomes a risk for the company? Is there, is there a tipping point here? Uh, yes. <clears throat> it, when it moves out of day-to-day uh, operations into something that is critically important for the functioning of the business. For example, uh, it, rooted in strategic paradox, we've seen most recently in uh, a major uh, financial services organization that had a strategic paradox that was rooted in uh, sales goals versus ethics. Mm-hmm. And the management culture sided with the sales goals strategy. Get these accounts open no matter what. And people were known to raise their hands on the front lines and ask, should we really be doing this? This doesn't feel right. You know, this is, I don't don't know if this is really ethical. You know what the numbers are. You know what the game is. You know what your goals are. If you want to be here, be quiet and just do, do your work. Now, That is one response, but it wasn't one response because so many people in the employee culture heard it, and that story became legendary. It went around like wildfire. Don't question this. Just do it, and we know the rest of that story. So phantom accounts were created to reach sales goals, and people tried to speak up, but they were silenced. 
meaning they were told, don't you dare. So they mm-hmm. didn't. And yeah. in another case, an employee uh, within a man- ice cream manufacturing company in the South, they had a Southeast and a Southwest manufacturing plant. Both of them had very high cases of bacteria poisoning that were identified at two local hospitals, traced back to their manufacturing facility. Well, it turns out that employees along the line in the manufacturing raised their hand to say, you know, there's something about the ingredients here. This This doesn't feel right. There's something wrong. And they were told to be quiet and get back to work. Now, not only did that one person or two people who raised their hands hear that, but everybody on the line heard that. So the message is, if you've got something to say that interferes with the daily production of our work, keep your mouth shut. And they do. And that company had to shut down for, I think it was about 170 days, and they needed to go outside the organization to get a loan to stay afloat. Right. And I could keep going with stories. We traced yeah, right. this all the back all the way back to the Titanic. Yeah. And that was a fabulous culture of silence where before the maiden voyage the engineers were still trying to get the attention of senior management to say we do not have enough lifeboats and this is a huge risk. And in the last meeting before the maiden voyage, the engineers were given 15 minutes to talk about lifeboat safety while Esme, the chairman of White Star, took three hours to talk about the color of the first class cabin carpet. So the message there was safety is not important. It's not necessarily an explicit message, but an implicit message that's interpreted by the employee culture as a result of seeing, hearing management culture actions. Okay. All right. So we have so we have managers doing egregious practices like yelling and shouting and intimidating people. But we also have managers saying words that become probably more amplified than they intended them in the moment. So I'm certain that a manufacturing line, when there's a health and safety concern, doesn't really mean to say, for all time, don't ever raise any questions. But when you say it so strongly, so loudly, that's what gets heard. Am I understanding this correctly? Yes, and even if it isn't, that person who receives that message tells two friends, and they tell two friends, and this is how the employee culture works. They share, they tell stories that become solidified, they become institutionalized, and the interpretation is, if there's a problem, keep your mouth shut. Oh, okay. All right, I got it. Now, members of the employee culture are not going to check this out with the management culture. They're just going to assume that it's the rule, that's the norm, and uh, abide by it, right? Mm -hmm. It's the employee culture protecting itself. They never go to the management culture to check and say, hey, you know, we've uh, figured out that the way to stay safe here is to keep quiet even when there are pretty important problems that we know about. Is that right? They don't do that. They just abide by the legends, the stories that they tell each other. That's the inherent risk. So the best thing that leaders can do is to encourage voice, to encourage divergent thinking. And if you don't have a good attitude and a positive attitude toward uh, and a tolerance for divergent thinking, companies need to help their leaders figure out how to get it because that's one of the roadblocks, the belief system that I'm a manager, I'm a vice president, I'm an, an MD. 
uh, I know everything and there isn't anything that I can learn. That's the most dangerous mindset that could operate in any organization today. Right, and I can see that. So, okay, we get egregious practices and we get managers who believe they know everything and then we get managers who don't look for divergent thinking. Now, granted, some of these employees are raising questions every now and then. Rob, they get, you know, they waste a bunch of time and it wasn't a savvy move and there is an agreement among the employees and, you know, you could sort of forgive a manager for saying just get back to work on occasion. Did you see that as well in your work? Uh, no, uh, no. Uh, the, proce- the process of encouraging dialogue uh, to the point where it becomes frustrating for a manager to listen and to facilitate that dialogue, um, that may or may not be a risk. It's a risk if the manager shuts down the conversation. It's a risk if they do hurry up things like, well, I'll just, I'll just let me get back to you on that. And they never do. That's a risk. And what okay. I tell leaders is that they signed up for this, that <laughs> uh, their job is to encourage dialogue. Their job is to move knowledge to transfer it at lightning speed through the organization. The minute that stops, their competition has an immediate advantage over them. When knowledge stops in an organization, so does rapid problem solving, so does innovation, so does knowledge exchange that's valuable, that helps people figure out how to do their work, where things are working, where they're not. The worst thing to that can happen in an organization is slow down or stop the transfer of, of knowledge, especially tacit knowledge, that stuff that's not codified, highly risky. Great. I love that, especially tacit knowledge. I'll just see if I can capture mm. this one in some ways. I want to go back to a minute um, about the Titanic here because you said that the engineers were raising flags all along to say that there weren't enough lifeboats on the, but they couldn't get much voice or much attention to it. And that they spent three hours before the maiden voyage talking about the color of the carpet in the first class cabin. And then they had 15 minutes to talk about safety, which was we don't have enough lifeboats. That sends a signal that says, we don't care, shut up, don't say anything else. So we're back to a culture of silence and some deadly consequences in this case. It strikes me as a number of other cases we've talked about, like the Challenger disaster, for example, where the engineers believed there was a problem and it wasn't going to work the way it was planned and they thought that there was an issue with the O-ring and the temperature, but they had a hard time getting it heard and they had a hard time proving it. It was a bit more of a hunch than it was, you know, really hard scientific data and they were absolutely, totally shut down. So yet another Mm -hmm. one where we have a disaster because of a culture of silence. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. It's a very good example. And also uh, another case of strategic paradox that drives a culture of silence, similar to the financial services organization where the sales goals were more important than ethics and compliance. And in the case of the challenger, the, I believe it was the O-rings and the quality uh, of the O-rings, the safety factors um, were second to project management on time, on schedule delivery. That was the number one thing. It had been delayed and the project yeah. management would not hear it. It was expensive. So there were a lot of things working against right. uh, safety and um, the compliance standards. And yeah, it was right. very unfortunate. 
Right, and there was pressure on that one too, because in the Challenger, as I recall, if they didn't launch in that time window, they were going to miss, you know, for quite a while, and then that was going to be a massive cost. And you're right, they had had a lot of delays. So you see some legitimate issues that people are concerned about, and then you do exactly as you said that hurry up strategy or shut it down and miss what it is that you needed to hear all along the way. All right, Rob, we're going to take a break. Um, with me today is Rob Bogosian, and we're talking about the culture of silence. And I just want to repeat a couple of things that Rob said at the very beginning. The number one reason that pe- employees withhold information is about egregious leadership behaviors, where leaders are aggressive or they shout at people or they berate them. And that there are four reasons that employees are silenced. One is, okay, retaliation, use said you didn't want to equal the playing field. You didn't pay attention before. Why should I say now? Defensive, because I'm afraid. It seems risky to speak up. Social, because I don't want to get my friends in trouble. Or futile, because I've done it before. It didn't make any difference, so why not now? And this notion that what leaders have to do is to make sure that they are moving knowledge, particularly tacit knowledge, transferring it at lightning speed through the organization. That's a great metaphor. So we're going to take a break, Rob. Um, The book, again, is Breaking Corporate Silence. When we come back, I want to talk about, so what do you do? So how can you tell where you are in your organization, and how can you change whatever silence is there? We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Rob Bogosian, and we have been talking about Rob's book, Breaking Corporate Silence. And to repeat, Rob comes to this work as from corporate life, being vice president of performance and development at Wachovia, which is a Wells Fargo company. And before that, he was at State Street. Um, The book has gotten a lot of attention from a number of um, magazines and organizations, and it's actually really, really important 
topic, as you can tell from we're talking about it. We've just been talking about the consequences and the implications and how hard it is for companies to know that they are CEOs in particular, to know that there has been silence until there's a headline news story. So just want to repeat one statistic that Rob says from his research. People say 96% of the problems that lower-level employees know and exist in a company are never explained or told or relayed to the C-suite. 96%. Now, some of them get solved before they are needed to be relayed, but some of them don't. They just sit there. So interesting. I still think most CEOs would want to know. So, Rob, let's shift from the consequences and the causes of this culture of silence and talk about how do we go about diagnosing it. So, You know, I'm imagining most senior executives sit there and say, yeah, I know that's a problem other places, but my company is really good because I don't do any of that egregious stuff. What do you say back to them? (laughs) Uh, What I say back to them is, of course not. Uh, But is it possible that this exists in your organization? And even if there was a chance that it did, would you want to know about it? And the answer is, well, yes, of course I would want to know about it. So in that case, uh, we will usually launch the SVI, the Silence Voice Index, which is the proprietary diagnostic and analytics that tell a client what scales they have, what is their index on a one to six point scale. And they can see whether or not there is, in fact, a culture of silence or a culture of voice, uh, for that matter, because sometimes it depends on the particular line of business. We've seen enterprise silence voice index uh, reports that show uh, one division has a high uh, fear factor, silence of uh, culture of silence, and another line of business has a high culture of voice. And usually we trace that back to leadership practices and belief systems. Mm-hmm. And then we, we can work with a particular line of business to turn it around. There, so there's that enterprise-wide um, identif- the identification process. How do we uncover this? And in, in addition to that, on a, on a micro level, the SVI can be done in a multi-rater assessment so that an individual leader can see the extent to which they're actually shaping a culture of voice or shaping a culture of silence. And there are some some indicators uh, day in and day out, and we call this SVI light. For example, we ask leaders uh, in in my keynote speech, um, and we do this with online polling right in the moment. In, in, here's one example. In, in how many meetings within the last three months did you get what we call the bovine stare, that blank look when you ask people for input? And that's a clear indicator. If you get that bovine stare from your staff a lot, meaning more than three times in a one-month period on average, that's a red flag. Okay. We ask, how many half-baked ideas have you received from employees in the last month that you hoped would die on the vine? If it's three or more in the last month on average, that's a red flag. 
we ask people how many times in the last month they've responded to employee ideas with the phrase, let me play devil's advocate. If that's three or more times average, that's a red flag. So there are a few uh, ways that we can very quickly identify the possibility of a culture of silence. And the reason why the bovine stare is so important and it's an indicator is because it represents an unwillingness on behalf of the employee culture to speak up. And the half-baked ideas, uh, if you're not getting them, that's a problem. Half-baked ideas are okay. And the whole notion of helping people to develop and fully bake the idea, that's the essence of what we call high-influence leadership. But if they're dismissed with discounts, like that'll never work, or you didn't think of this, or statements like that's, not, that's wrong, it can't, it's not, it, I call it the we can't, we're not, we won't syndrome, that shuts conversations down. And there's an option, which is how do we build this up? Devil's advocate is a great one. Lawyers love this, and that's fine. If you have a relationship with your manager and you do this and it works, fantastic, go do it. However... There's an option. Devil's Advocate is really a teardown methodology. It takes an idea as given, and it finds all the holes in it. So it's teardown. Let's tear it down one limb at a time. Reduce the idea to its lowest common denominator, then go back and fix the things that we've identified as wrong or risky. Come back, and we'll play the game all over again. The opposite of teardown methodology is build-up methodology. So build-up methodology encourages the idea from its current state to get to the goal of creating the best idea there is. That's the outcome. And the way to do that is to address each of the concerns that the leader or leadership community has about the given idea in its current state as questions. How would this get through legal? How will ethics and compliance respond to this? How will customers respond to this? How will we get this through the budget cycle? So those are stimulating uh, questions that encourage judgment and curiosity and dialogue. You see the difference between tearing down and building up. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, the tear right. down methodology tends to invite defensiveness. People go to their they go to their battle stations and they're ready to defend an idea. Well, how is that helping it get better? It isn't. So yeah. I I work with leaders to to use build up language versus tear down language. Um, I ask leaders within the last two weeks how many people openly disagreed with them in, in uh, one-on-one or in group settings. That's another key indicator. If no one's disagreeing with you, it's an indicator of uh, uh, intolerance for divergent thinking. And the employee culture knows how to color inside the, the, the lines so that if they're presenting ideas or viewpoints that are outside the tolerance level, and the leader has mechanisms to get people to go inside the tolerance level. Employees know what that tolerance level is. And so they stay within those lines, that safety zone. So what do you get? A protection of status quo. Well, that's not exactly a winning strategy in a market that's highly competitive, especially in the digital economy where knowledge is moving so fast that we can't even keep up. And customers are demanding more problem, more innovation, faster than they ever have before because they get more knowledge perhaps than their suppliers do at any given point in time. So tolerance for divergent thinking is absolutely paramount to create and sustain a competitive advantage. 
But let me get back to this with an example. Um, a young engineer has a brilliant idea of a new technology he's just learned at school, um, thinks it would work for this particular company. He goes and presents it to his boss. His boss says, great, I'll get you an audience with the senior most levels. He goes to the senior most levels, presented. It doesn't land very well. They do the, yeah, but it's not invented here. We don't know how to do it. I'm not so sure. It's the teardown bit, you know, the kind of maybe this will go away thing. Um, they come out of that meeting. His boss claps him on the shoulder and says, geez, um, I was really disappointed in you. And mm. the young guy promised never to bring another idea again. He transferred out of that department and out of the research area as fast as he could get out. And three years later, that company was behind the eight ball on exactly the technology he'd mm. been introducing. So there wow. you go. Sample. Okay, simple. Perfect example. I also have um, another leader. I often tell this story because it's such a great story. A woman as a leader asking, how do you take over a role when you don't know all the details of everybody underneath you? So you can't really sort of check on it. And she says, one of my biggest indicators is I sit in on my direct reports team meetings and I just listen. If my directs are having a two-way dialogue with their employees, then I figure collectively they can't be missing too much. But the moment I find a one-way dialogue, I start to dig in. That's an indicator to me that something is wrong. So there you are again. That same thing is just represented in a different way in terms of the culture of silence. Right. Right. Those are great examples. Um, What I find is that uh, the, the practices that drive cultures of voice or silence are embedded in a leader's belief systems. So yes. where they get branded is this, we, we have this pyramid and at the top are observable behaviors. And that's what uh, the employee culture uses to brand the leader and establish the norms of operating and staying safe. Those observable behaviors are typically driven by values, right? And those values are d- driven by underlying belief systems. And I find that most successful in changing culture is when you get to the belief system of the leader, the power holders, uh, because if they believe, for example, that if you give people an inch, they'll take a mile, that belief system is flawed. But imagine operating as a leader, the power holder, with that sort of belief system and how that lands on people, how that's interpreted on a daily basis impacts the people who rely on that leader for support, guidance, for hope, for inspiration, for sharing information, for participating in the process of excellence and results. That can fundamentally shut down an organization very, very quickly unless you change that belief system and reorder it, it's more of the same. So you might say to a leader, well, you know, we want you to stop micromanaging. Okay, maybe they'll do it for a week or two or maybe even a month. But without examining, helping the leader to examine their underlying belief systems, what is it that's driving your need to micromanage? What is the root cause of it? They won't change. They can't. Yeah. So that's where we operate. You know, it's hard work, but you yeah. have to do yeah, it if you they, want to make fundamental they, change. So talk for a minute about what the opposite side of the culture of silence looks like. So you call this the culture of voice, and you talk about high-impact leaders. What are those leaders doing, and what are their belief systems that's different? Oh, great. Okay. So first of all, uh, they ask and learn more than they talk and tell. 
That's number one, okay. paramount. paramount sorry. <laughs> so we, we call this the 2080 rule. So the assertion is that as a leader, you should be talking and telling about 20% of the time and listening, asking and learning 80% of the time. So the 2080 rule. Uh, that's one of the things that they do well. Um, the other is that they fundamentally believe that people can and do contribute regardless of where they are in the organization. Um, they encourage and have a positive attitude toward divergent thinking. For example, these high-influence leaders, and I've seen them and I've worked with them in the companies that are really, really good at this, like I, I, I'm going to just name it, Microsoft impresses me very much. I, I have worked in that system okay. for a few years. And what I see is that when an idea is declared, they use build-up language. They talk about how could it be better and how could we make this work, and even if it doesn't, they're always thinking about how could we, uh, how will it work, what will it take to make it work. They stimulate build-up language and encourage divergent thinking. If they hear people saying, oh, yeah, that's good, oh, yeah, that's good, oh, I agree with that, I agree with that, what I encourage leaders to do is to pause, use that as a red flag, and, and pause and say, wait a minute, who sees this differently? One question, who sees this differently? And then I encourage leaders to use the 45-second rule, which is just shut up and listen. Count to 45 seconds. Ask the question and be quiet. And in that silence, if you start counting to 45, it'll give the leader something to do while they're waiting. But <laughs> people will respond after about 25 seconds. Um, the other thing they do in terms of their belief system is that they think and experience feedback as a gift, not as a threat. So they can really hear it when people say, ah, uh, you know, that thing you did, I don't know about that. They, they see it as a way to do something better. Um, the, the other thing they do is they constantly have their finger on their own pulse. They're self-reflecting and they're gaining insight all the time. You know, they're aware in a meeting, am I shutting down conversations? Is this working? Is this not working? Did that land well? And they can self-correct in the moment and, and after the moment, but they rarely leave any tensions unresolved. Um, and they lastly encourage their associates to learn and grow in their current role. So this is based on our research and observation comparing what we term high-influence leaders to, you know, average, average leaders in organizations that are performing at moderate levels, but they're not high-performance levels compared to their competitors. This is the distinction that we see. Wow. That's a, I mean, those are very simple things. I, I want to tackle, because yeah. you made it such a strong thing about, we see the observable behaviors, those are the stories we tell, those are the messages we spread, and that's what gives clues for us of employees on what it is that acceptable and isn't acceptable. But those behaviors are driven by values, and that's driven by beliefs, and I really like your, your framework on that one. Um, and this notion of looking underline what's your belief about the people that work for you and about your role as a leader. And so we find you're reporting then that people who create cultures of voice and who are therefore high influence leaders fundamentally believe that people can and do contribute regardless of their level. And they believe that feedback is a gift, that every feedback is a chance to see how I can do it better. And they believe that they need to reflect and be constantly aware and correcting 
on how can I do that better? How can I solve that one? Did it land where I wanted it to land? And they believe they don't have to have the answer. I think that's part of your ask and learn at 80% versus talk and tell at 20%. And I encourage learning and growth. It's a pretty significant belief system. Yes. Yes. The, there's one additional thing that I want to add, which is the okay. overarching learning orientation of the high influence leader, and it is the consummate learner. Um, and I see it as dichotomy. So it's either leader as the judge or leader as the consummate learner. So the leader as the judge, think about that mindset. They go into interactions with people thinking, I know it all. I'm the one that's going to make the decisions. I've got the power. Nobody else. Now, that, if you play that out and extrapolate, you can see how that would have a tendency, that mindset would have a tendency to shut conversations down. And that mindset is very quickly picked up by the associate culture. They know that it's in the vernacular. People will say, oh, your way or the highway. Um, And it fuels a cycle of dependency that's very paternalistic. So nobody's going out on a limb in that person's order. No one. It's, it's more, is this okay? Is this what you want? It, it should, should, what should I do mm-hmm. next? And they don't really know that they're the ones that are causing this parental cycle of dependency. So they're the mm-hmm. first ones to call HR and ask for accountability training because they can't believe that people aren't just doing the things that they should be doing and they're always coming to me for help and, and guidance when I've told them a hundred times. So not, not, that those, those are naive attributions, but that learning orientation is very critical. Right. I often have called that as they create a learned helplessness. Mm-hmm. The organization learns okay. really quickly it. that I might as well just come to you and ask because you're going to tell me any rate, so why am I bothering in asking? Exactly. Exactly. Um, I yes, think you're right. I also, I imagine if you ask most leaders, they say, oh, no, I'm not the judge. I know I don't know everything. But I think we forget the ways in which we act as the judge in very subtle ways. And I think that's coming back to some of the other things you said about what it is that leaders do that create the culture of silence. So think about things like, no, that's not going to work. Or why did you think that? Or wait, you didn't think about that. It's that teardown methodology that you were talking about where you come in as the critic and you're finding the right. flaw, often with a good intent, but the net result is you are being the judge of what's good enough. Exactly. That's the problem. Exactly. Okay. The gatekeeper. Okay. Uh, yes. So yeah. we call it, actually, Dr. Weaver from Boston University calls it discounting. Yeah. And uh, he says we do it so often in companies that we're immune to it. And if you, we have really close relationships with people, we can get away with it. Like, you know, if, if, we're, if we know people, we can, we can use satire like, oh, well, you, well, that's a great idea. What are you smoking? Or, uh, you know, how much did you drink at lunch? But those are, if, that, if that's a habitual exchange and a response to some idea generation or uh, some problem solution proposal, uh, people don't want to hear that, especially in group settings, because it's a self-esteem uh, uh, dent. Mm-hmm. And maybe you could say it once or twice, but if you say it in public, um, yeah. it can be threatening and it can shut people down. I'm not going there. I'm not going to put myself in a position where I'm the target of uh, the boss's discounting. That's right. That's so right. that resonates a lot. Uh, the okay. discounting language t- t- 
tends to get embedded in um, the cultural vernacular very quickly in my experience. I introduce okay. it in every system where I go. Okay. All right. Well, let's shift the tables for a minute, Rob. And I want to talk about, now we've been talking about CEOs and leaders of businesses and the things that they need to be doing in their belief systems and creating a culture of voice. I want to go down in the food chain and I want to talk about the individual leader who, or the individual person who maybe doesn't have an awful lot of power and they're seeing a culture of silence. What can that person do to change the culture? Well, there are two things that they can do. They have to keep in mind that there's a lot at stake when they raise an issue. And first and foremost is the ego of the person at the next level or two or three up in the chain. And what I want that person to remember is the difference between high challenge language and low challenge language. So high challenge language is almost not like a passive aggressive, like we have to fix this and we have to fix this now, or this is a problem and it's the sky's falling and that's high challenge language. Low challenge language is, I think we may want to think about this process a little bit. I have a concern and I want to share that with you. Can we have, a, can we have that conversation? Yes or no? You know, you don't say yes or no, but you get permission to move forward. Okay, so you get through the first gate. The leader says, yes, of course, we can have that conversation. What's up? Well, I noticed that this condition happens and that condition happens, and I'm a little worried about it. I think the consequences might be this one, two, and three. Does that concern you? Yes, it does. No, it doesn't. Okay, so there's small segments of dialogue where permission is, is asked for at each step of the way. So you're managing the process of the dialogue very carefully using low challenge language. That's the best way we know how to influence up in an organization when problems occur that may be connected to the person who they have to report it to. Okay. This strikes me as taking, first off, we're taking a lot of the emotion down, way, way down, dialing it down. And you're taking small steps, not big steps. And we're not going to hit right. the problem like smack in the head. We're going to start with, I have a concern about this thing. I'm presuming it needs to be more factual, too. Is that fair, Rob? Yes, it is. It is. You have to know what's the problem and what are the potential consequences. Unless something is quite urgent, you know, we need a signature on this document and we need to get it in in 15 minutes. That's urgent, you know. So. Okay. That's like red light, emergency room, right away, we need to get this. That's different. Right. Okay, right. But when, when there's something else operating that's a little more long-term, uh, managing that process of dialogue through each gate of entry is very important, and it, it is factual. I notice this. This is the consequence. Is that okay with you? We need to talk about this. There might be some other ways of doing this procedure. Are you interested in hearing my ideas? I have a few of them. Yes, I am. No, I'm not. Okay. If you are, you just got to the next level. If, you're, if they're not interested, hey, you tried, and what can you do? Right. Right. Um, you just go on. But it's, it's, it is about making sure that you don't have the solution necessarily. You can have a dialogue about possibilities of solutions, but identifying the problem is really about what is the problem, uh, what are the potential consequences, 
And if you're thinking about an idea to correct it, what are those ideas and just presenting them? But get permission to do it first. I have a couple of ideas. Are you interested in hearing them? Yes, I am. No, I'm not. It's a very non-threatening way I call it low challenge. I like this idea of getting permission to take the next step. So are you interested in hearing? Do you have, I mean, I'm so as you can say, do you have time to talk about this? Or um, I have some concerns. Are you open to hearing about those? That like step by step by step by step. But you also have to be really clear in that language that it's not an attacking language. So I have some concerns about how you're speaking is not going to go well. That's right. That's right. You can't make statements like, this is really a disaster. You know, that sort of catastrophic high challenge language will be met with defensiveness. It's like, get away from me. Right. That's the, you know, the manager's like, what are you doing? What what is this? Uh, It's a barrage and you can't do that because everybody needs their time. So the question is, how do I influence up? Right. And that's the best way to do it. Okay, and um, presumably sometimes this works, and presumably sometimes it doesn't. Right, right. There's no guarantee that this methodology is absolutely 100% foolproof, but it does increase your chances of having upward influence. Okay. All right, so what if I've tried this, and let's say I've done it in a really, really good way, and I've actually probably had to rehearse it with some of my friends to make sure I got it clean, and Mm -hmm. I've done this, and I get shut down. Now what? Is there any a next mm-hmm. step? Yeah, I would just say the last step is, you know, no, I'm not interested in hearing that. No, you're wrong. No, it'll be fine. We're not going to worry about that. Okay. What I usually encourage people to do is try to leave the door open. If you change your mind or if you want to talk about this further, I'm open in here to do so whenever you want or need to do that. Okay. That's it. What can you do? There are some times when you're not going to be able to influence up. It's just a fact of organizational life. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe your assertions are wrong. Maybe there are things going on in the organization that you don't know about and can't know about. Um, So there are a number of variables that might determine how far you progress in upward communication and influence. Okay. All right, let me do one more question, which I think you're going to give me a similar answer. But, you know, suppose I'm leading a group in an organization, even a fairly large group, and my CEO and my peers all live in a culture of silence. Hmm. But I want to try to create this culture of voice in my part of the world. And -hmm. I'll give you the heads up. You've got about three minutes. What's the Mm -hmm. secret? What's the advice there? Uh, You know, I get this question all the time, and my response is, you can do this in your world, even if the world above you operates very differently, because the person who matters most to your employees is you. They might be mildly concerned about the SVP or the EVP, but they're really concerned about you and your interaction with them, because you hold the power. You've got the checkbook. And so I encourage leaders to try it. Now, the frustrations they have from their level up is an entirely different story. But from their level down, they definitely have the power to encourage people to talk, asking questions, practicing the 2080 rule, the 45 second rule. They can do those two things would make a fundamental difference in people's willingness 
to participate in dialogue and to create a microculture of voice. It is very possible to do that. Okay. I've actually seen leaders on occasion say things like, I know that this kind of questioning and challenge is handled differently in other places. We're going to do it differently here. Do you think that's okay? Exactly. And that value of voice is one that people, leaders can express no matter what level they're at, even if they're supervisory or team leader level, to say, I want to create a culture of voice and encourage dialogue and exchange of information here, and this is how I'm going to do it. Be very specific about that and live it, live it every day. So it can exist at lower levels, even if at the upper echelons it's not existing. Because think about it. If Supervisor 1 does that and Supervisor 2 does that and Supervisor 3 does that, there's substantial momentum lower in the organization than there would be otherwise. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I can see the power of this one. Rob, we're coming to close, and I just have to repeat what you've said about what it is that leaders do who create a culture of voice, because I think these are important actions for everybody to pay attention to. And so I'm just going to go through your litany here. First off, 80-20 rule, meaning 80% of the time asking and learning, 20% of the time talking and telling. That's a high standard. Two, believe that people can and do contribute at all levels. Three, encourage divergent thinking. And I love your example. Who sees this differently here if you're getting a lot of agreement? Or how can we make it better? How could we make it work? What could be possible here? Number four, the 45-second rule of silence. Ask and wait 45 seconds. Count to 45 while you're waiting for everybody to speak. Number five, um, a belief that feedback is really a gift and constantly seeking ways in which you can do things better in all walks of life from anybody. Six is a finger on your own pulse, aware of how what you just said is landing and being able to correct in the moment and not leave the tension hanging around. Number seven is encourage learning and growth for people in their organization. And I think number eight was also being the learner, having a learner approach as a leader as opposed to being a judge as a leader. Yes. yes. That's a great checklist in and of itself. And I can see how that would be enormously valuable for people to get feedback on how well they're doing all of those from their employees. Okay. Rob, thank you. This was brilliant. I think it's a hugely important topic. And as you said, given that knowledge needs to transfer around the organization at lightning speed today in order to stay competitive, the leader's job is to encourage that transfer of knowledge. And that's what this is all about. My guest today is Rob Bogosian. He is the principal at RVB Associates. The book he's co-authored is called Breaking Corporate Silence. And as you've heard Rob say, they also have various indicators in 360 assessments if you're interested. SVI. So, Rob, thanks for being a guest. And join us next week for another episode on how to get out of the comfort zone. Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.